Hello and welcome back to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, should there be a circuit breaker in football? Should games be postponed due to the Omicron variant? We'll talk about the Africa Cup of Nations. Should Premier League players be going to Africa with medical protocols allegedly not up to scratch? We'll also look back to the big week of Premier League football. Are Arsenal ready for a tilt at the top four? Should Leeds United be thinking about life after Marcelo Biel? So we'll also pay tribute to the great Sergio Aguero. This is the game. Hello and welcome back to the Game Podcast. I'm Hugh Wozencroft alongside the two Toms, Thomas Roddy and Tom Clark. Tom smiling. This is Tom Roddy smiling because he hates being called Thomas. But I've got to differentiate in some way, mate, okay? We're going to start, of course, with the Premier League action of this week before we come to the big COVID discussion. We'll also talk Sergio Aguero a little bit later on. We have to start with a game at the Emirates Stadium. Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, not in the squad, stripped of the Arsenal captaincy, his teammates earned a deserved 2-0 win over West Ham United. They move for now into the top four in the Premier League. So, Tom, how seriously should we be taking Mikel Arteta's side as Champions League contenders? They've got more points and wins at home this season in the Premier League than anyone else. That's a significant part of it, isn't it, Hugh? This um, The ability to turn your stadium into the cliché fortress. I'm not sure how serious they are as contenders for top four right now. Partially the reason being that I think they are still very impressive going forward, and but still there are frailties at the back. I'm not quite convinced that's been resolved. And I think it, it worked a little bit for them that they played a West Ham team who they replaced in the top four and have been incredibly impressive this season but are going through a period in which they're not quite as effective going forward and Mikel Antonio is is clearly struggling with fitness I guess from you know traveling to play for for Jamaica in the international breaks and they they've benefited from that hugely but last night was it, it felt like a, a bit of a turning point for them in a way because it was a real you you could see the energy that Mikel Arteta had on the, on the touchline how important he felt it was because this was a a defining week really for for him and his leadership to make such a a bold decision in not only dropping Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang but stripping him of the captaincy there that it needed a performance like that and it showed it really did show that the players were with him on on the decision. Tom, you called it Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang stripped of the Arsenal captaincy since the last time we spoke. I won't I won't try and mimic the phrase you said last time around. Tell us what you think about that decision again, but also where do you see Arsenal finishing this season? Yep, that's right, Hugh. It was a win for cocking a snook. To cock a snook, that was my phrase. That was my phrase about what I was going to do to Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. And I, yeah, look, it was fairly unanimous, wasn't it? It wasn't just me who felt it was time for a change, time for him to be stripped of the Arsenal captaincy. We all said it. And it, I think it kind of is just another moment where it feels like Arteta is seizing on a, a bit of a change in atmosphere at the club overall. Among the fans, I was speaking to a good friend of mine who's an Arsenal fan. He just... 
He said he's got hopes for a European finish, maybe even a top four, but he just says it feels like the club's heading in the right direction. He's excited by the young players coming through the football that they're trying to play, not always, you know, not always pulling it off. But I just wondered whether, you know, Tom, you reported on the game, does it feel like this is just another moment, another part of a overall change that is happening at Arsenal through this season. There'll be ups and downs, of course. It just feels to me like they're heading in the right direction overall. And this is just another moment, beating a good West Ham side who are in a bit of a difficult patch, changing captain. This just feels like another step in the right direction. It was a huge job for for Mikel Arteta, really, wasn't it, when he took over. The one thing that I kind of pick out from this Aubameyang situation is not only really just him stripping him of the captaincy, but but for, for now at least removing him completely because what, what you actually see when you look at Arsenal's team is a, a transformation in every single department. You've got Ramsdale now in goal. You've got a defence which is... I think entirely, entirely transformed uh, with Ben White coming in, Tommy Asu, um, Kieran Tierney now plays, but also Nuno Tavares, Arteta signed uh, Thomas Partey. And then you've got the attack of Martinelli and Odegaard, um, who is key for and, and one of Arteta's favourite players and, and Saka. All of those areas have been transformed. The only part of the pitch which hasn't been by Arteta so far, and he wants to and is trying to, is the attack. It's it's kind of been the the stagnant period, and and I kind of thought the the performance of Lacazette was one last night that was uh, I'm I'm hanging on because he really was impressive, especially considering he's expected to be gone at the end of of this year. But it's an area of the pitch he ha- he is looking to to improve, and it says a lot for where he's looking to go because uh, Paul Joyce reported a, a few weeks ago that he was looking at Dominic Calvert-Lewin and um, there is clearly this this core of English, young English players that he wants to, to lead Arsenal into this new era who the fans certainly connect with. But also the one thing I've kind of noted about them is that we forget because we are that bit older than them, that they they maybe don't know what the history was. I mean, we had we had Aaron Ramsdale, uh, part of an Aaron Ramsdale uh, interview on this podcast uh, last week, and and during that chat, he he was kind of talking about he, he didn't really know, he didn't really wasn't able to watch the glory years of Arsenal. So this this group is almost sort of unburdened by the history of the club, which has haunted the players for, for this past decade, really, you know, the success that they couldn't achieve to, to match the Invincibles and the Premier League winners under Wenger. So it, it, it does feel like a, a huge shift um, and it feels like a totally different team to the one that, Arteta inherited. They've spent a lot of money of late uh, and they're going to have to spend some more on those attacking areas if Alex Lacazette leaves the club 
And maybe if Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang does as well, and that would have to be a sizable amount of money to replace his goals. They do need to look forward though, Tom, and choose a new captain. The Arsenal fans have been uh, arguing over who it should be. I think Kieran Tierney comes out on top for many people. Bakayu Saka is in there as well. Thomas Partey, who would you choose? I think Tierney is probably the safest bet and probably embodies a lot of the kind of qualities that perhaps we're talking about and that Tom highlighted there a fresh younger mindset he's obviously a very down-to-earth chap we all remember those pictures of him with his Tesco carrier back <laughs> rather than his Louis, Louis Vuitton uh, wash bag heading to a game I think that could be good for this group of players but as I suggested on Monday I don't think it would be a bad thing if you know say he was picked as captain but Arteta also said to a few of the younger players perhaps Ramsdale included that you know you're part of a group that I see leading this team over the next few years. I mean, we discussed Ramsdale on Monday, didn't we? And Tom, you weren't on, but having interviewed him, do you do you see him as someone who could be a captain? I, my personal view was that because of his character and his kind of seem, you know, seems to be quite a bit of a joker in the pack, the captaincy might not suit him and that he might be best left to be a great goalkeeper and a bit of a character around the squad. What do you think? When I was considering who, who could have it, I, I, I sort of ended up falling to, towards him for the reason that I think he does represent what I was just talking about in this new Arsenal team. But but also it's the the, the consistency he's shown. I think that's that's the possibly the one issue with Tierney is the, the game last night was only his second appearance since the middle of October pretty much in the Premier League. So really need a captain who's going to be around and and in the team consistently. That's part of the issue I see. Odegaard is certainly, and and perhaps surprisingly, one of the, the contenders that Arteta likes a lot he seems to be um he he seems to be the guy he he talks to most during matches i mean bizarrely you you watch and the the kind of de facto captain in arsenal's team is granite jacker you, you you watch the games and that that's how it is but to me giving it to him it would be a a step back. Do you, do you think it would be? I, I'd listen. I, I think maybe until the end of the season, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world because of his experience level. Um, I, I've spoken before about, I think the fact that, you know, whoever Arsenal choose because they've got such an inexperienced squad, you know, you, 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 there are a variety of reasons for choosing your captain. Um, one is leadership on the pitch. We've seen young captains in the Premier League and we've got a couple of young captains now in the Premier League who lead by example, but the rest of the squad has a certain level of experience that means they don't look to that player for that sort of advice on how games are going. You know, someone who's played 350, you know, 400 games and knows exactly how to get you through. So... Because their squad is so inexperienced, I actually think that they need a leader who has a little bit more. And that's why I think Granit Xhaka until the end of the season would probably be a good choice. Alex Lacazette until the end of the season might be a good choice as well. But I think long term... Sam Allardyce of captaincy. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Um, but I think long term, they do need to add leaders to the group. I, I, For me personally, I don't like the idea of choosing, with all due respect to Kieran Tierney, a, a player as captain who is very injury prone. Um, we've seen a couple of cl- club captains. We've got Cesar Azpilicueta at Chelsea, who's not in the team at the moment. Doesn't seem to be putting Chelsea off at all. 
But there you go, the players in the side, you know, Thiago Silva might wear the armband, you know, huge experience, huge figure in the world of football, slightly different to handing it off, you know, to a Kieran Tierney, for example, or an Aaron Ramsdale. So it's going to be a big decision. Um, they've added a lot of youth. It will see, it'll be interesting to see if they continue that trend uh, in the next transfer window. Um, just quickly on West Ham United, though, Tom, you had a look at this. They've only won one of their last six Premier League matches. Everyone was talking about them for the top four. Is their season coming off the rails slightly? And and do you think they should be investing heavily in January to maybe turn things around? Well, it was interesting to hear David Moyes hint last night that they would look at January. I think that was the I think that was the first time he's really actually said that. Um, but it makes sense. The, pr- the problem is with their team is that they've t- they've pretty much completely lost the back four. I mean, Ben Johnson, Ogbonna, Zuma, and Cresswell were starting the games at the beginning of January. They're all out with injury at the moment. Ogbonna and um, Zuma the central defensive partnership out for the foreseeable future. They're not coming back anytime soon. I think Johnson's got a couple more weeks and Cresswell might be fit for this weekend. But I mean, that's huge. If we were, if we were looking at any team in the Premier League to lose their back four, because you know the impact, the knock-on effect it has going forward through the team. Also, the other, the other issue that I think West Ham have is that we we know and we've spoken before that they consistently punch above their weight under David Moyes and he gets he's been getting everything he possibly can out of them he has a small squad and he decided to do that and and has consistently decided to do that throughout his years of management because he likes this idea of young players under 23s being able to push and, and break through and and bring them in but in in this season when it seems that fatigue is at its worst we're going to talk about covid and the impact that's having it's it was a real dangerous time and we're, we're sort of seeing the effects a little bit on on what's happening with them. Um, I mean, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, when he was in charge at United at the beginning of the season, he decided specifically to have a, a bigger squad at Man United for the, for the COVID reason alone because he knew there was the potential that it could impact his squad and, and it wouldn't, they would still have replacements to bring in. So, yeah, and I think the problem is there is a huge reliance on Mikel Antonio up front and, and he's having a difficult period at the moment. And when he struggles, West Ham tends to struggle. I think January could be huge for a number of clubs in the Premier League. Um, it could be one of those Januaries, actually, that we see a lot more movement than we've expected in previous years. Um, I've spoken before about the number of players who have contracts expiring next summer. So we could see some movement there as well. One of those teams for me is Leeds United in desperate need of help at the moment. Um, yes, it was a bad result. They were thrashed by Manchester City, seven goals to nil. Pep Guardiola handing out a lesson to the old master, Marcelo Bielsa. Um, Bielsa had some interesting things to say afterwards. It's not that City played very well. It's a lot more noticeable how badly we played. City play like this all the time or similar to it. 
we have never played so badly in these four years. In fact, it's Leeds United's worst start to a season since 1930-31. Since joining the Football League in 1920, it was their joint biggest defeat in any competition. It's Bielsa's worst defeat in almost 600 games as a manager, although he did blame himself. He said, what I proposed was not good enough. You can deflect the attention when some things work and some don't, but when nothing works, the decisions of the one in conduction define what happens. The idea, solutions, what I proposed and organized, none of it worked. So the question is, is Marcelo Bielsa right? Is he becoming an issue for Leeds United, Tom Clark. Oh, goodness me. I can't believe you handed me that one, Hugh. Um, yes, maybe. God, I'm tempted not to say it, but yes, maybe. I I was listening to you read those quotes and I found myself thinking back to Rick Broadbent joining us on the show a few weeks ago and talking about his belief as a fan that the players seem a bit mentally shot. Obviously, they're known for their kind of physical exertion on the training ground and during matches and, uh, you know, <sighs> helped them so much last season, but he he felt that they were a bit mentally shot. And when you then hear a manager talk like that about, we know how City are going to play. It was all our fault. It was my fault. And you think about that from a mental standpoint and from the idea of players feeling a bit downtrodden, that is, you're, you're starting to head into the rut territory, I feel. Um, <laughs> we then come back to maybe the argument about we had before about Dean Smith and Aston Villa that we've had about other clubs. Are they going to get relegated? Probably not. I would say, I don't think they'll go down. Um, and so then as a, as a, as a club, they maybe have to say, you know, Bielsa doesn't, isn't a manager that buys into these long-term deals. Is there a case that they can kind of plan, plan for the summer and beyond rather than, as you say, thinking and panicking in January, maybe had one or two players that might be young, uh, promising players that, that will be uh, of use from the summer and beyond anyway, but that maybe they keep going and but think about maybe life without Marcelo Bielsa from the summer onwards. God, the Leeds United fans are screaming at us right now. He's God. You can't disagree with Marcelo Bielsa. Get Dave Hockaday back. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I say it all with full knowledge that the guy has done great, great things for that club. I think they either need to go to the next phase and which would need a, a largely completely overhauled squad. And you're then talking about Bielsa drilling into those new players, the Bielsa way, which... As we saw from him taking charge, he didn't do it straight away in the championship. He needed a bit of time to get them promoted. I, it kind of there's just something about it that feels that you could go to the end of the season and then part ways in a very he will always be a legend in this club type way, and actually it might suit everyone to plan for the future. That's not me saying he's a terrible coach. That's not me saying they should sack him straight away. There's just something about it that feels like, you know, th this project has had its time and it either needs real reinvigoration in the form of a lot of money being spent and him committing and saying, if you spend this money on these eight players, I'm going to stay until I've turned them into Marcelo Bielsa players, which you can never guarantee with him as his career's taught us, or you go the other way. I don't know. Am I wrong? I think that's fair. I think that's absolutely fair about the idea of certainly planning ahead in the, the summer. 
<laughs> I, I'm not. I'm the only thing I'm not so sure about is this idea of of the you know bringing in players and turning in them into Marcelo Bielsa players because I think part of the reason why you know Bielsa could very easily have turned to the media, turned to us on um, the other night and said, well, you know, look, I haven't got, I haven't got Calvin Phillips. I haven't got Patrick Bamford. I haven't got, you know, Luke Ayling, Robin Cock. They, they are hugely significant misses for Leeds. They are, they are what, they were at the center of why Leeds came up. They're at the center of what made them the, the, the team they are. I mean, Stuart Dallas has been far from his best this year as well, but he doesn't do that. And I think part of the reason is because Bielsa seems to have this, this mindset that, uh, and, and it's quite understandable because a lot of the players are still the ones that he inherited, um, that he this is his football. This is his way. This is his school. And the people that attend will play the way he wants them to play. The, the, the problem is that, you know, the, the, there's also been the signings, Junior Furpo and Dan James, the, the signings that he has got so far, they haven't worked out really at the moment. That's a problem. The, the the issue as well, the interesting part is that they defensively, there is little change from last year. Their, their, their record is very similar. It's in the attacking areas that they are struggling. Now, whether that is the impact of Bielsa Ball, you know, taking its toll, or whether it's combined with the fact you have this typical fearlessness of a team coming up and then I'm not going to use the second season syndrome, but an, an element of, of, of that involved. So I think that might be part of where we're at. Is relegation unthinkable then? I mean, all of us just sit back and say, yeah, I'll keep him up at the end of the season. If he leaves, he'll go as a legend, you know, for everything he's done. And I'm just sitting there thinking, well, you know, if they don't turn the corner sharpish, there's a big risk that they will be involved in that relegation battle right until the end of the season. I mean, City could have scored 15. I mean, it wasn't just like a, a really bad performance on the night. They could have got... One of my mates was there and he just messaged me and he said, Leeds are a disgrace. <laughs> um, which, <laughs> which, Name which him. Might have been Name a little, him, shame. Name him. Which I can't, unfortunately, which might have been a little <laughs> bit harsh. Um, was, was your mate a Leeds fan or a City fan? He's neither, actually. He's a neutral. Oh. Um, but, um, but um, I, you know, I think, I do think, yeah, I do think it's one of those where you, you do have to think worst case scenario right now. And if Marcelo Bielsa, you know, if we get to, to February, March, and they're in the relegation zone, I mean, what do Leeds United do? Um, he, he doesn't strike me as a relegation battle type manager. Let's put it that way. Um, highly intense. You know, it's not just, you know, a bit of team spirit and passion today, lads. You know, it's about who wants it more. That's definitely not him. So I do think they're in more trouble than maybe, you know, we give them credit for just because they've got such a legendary manager in charge. I think if um, this current squad, the one that's playing at the minute, was the only squad he had to work with, I would agree with you. But I think Tom makes a good point about those players that have been missing. <laughs> Patrick Bamford, as we raved about him last season, is such a huge loss for him. You've got to remember as well, when we've talked about clubs like Newcastle under Steve Bruce and that toxic atmosphere, I can't ever see that changing at Leeds with Bielsa. So he's always going to have the fans behind him. 
even if, as Rick suggested and as I echo today, the players are mentally struggling, they'll still play for him. They're still his players. They're still his group. They're still the group that achieves so much. And I think with those injuries, they'll just have enough. And I think you could see an upturn in form once once they're back. But I, I agree with you. There is, there is a chance that they could be in a relegation scrap. Maybe they will be all the way to the end of the season. But I, I just think they'll they'll have enough. Part, partly because I think there's some teams that are worse um, and that have got more to do and that don't have the things going for them like they do, like fans being on their on their side and uh, being generally broadly behind the manager. But hey, look, we could we, in a month's time, we could be talking about something very different. If Leeds were to be in a serious relegation battle, then it, it, I think it would be heavily down to these injuries because the, the only teams they've lost to this season are... To, uh, top clubs really United Liverpool West Ham Arsenal Tottenham Chelsea and Man City I mean they're the teams they're the traditional top clubs in the division aren't they you know you you would you would actually expect them to lose to those teams if if you were to pit them against each other the other night was just this horrible storm for Leeds, a perfect storm for City where they're playing against the the reserves in a style that can only work when Leeds are at their very best. And they're a team that took four points from from City last season. It, it, it's, it's, I don't think it's as, I don't think it, they're in a as bad a position as we might imagine and may be having a knee-jerk reaction to the problem is whoa, this. Whoa. I feel attacked. <laughs> <laughs> the, the problem is this: this can escalate, as we know, extremely quickly. And now they come up against an Arsenal side who are playing very well and on good form. Liverpool, who you would expect to beat them, and again, an Aston Villa side who are pretty much on the. Christopher Wave a little bit at the moment with the managerial bounce. Um, it's January that's going to be really key for them. Absolutely, absolutely. And look, they, as, as badly as they played, Manchester City were fantastic, scoring seven without a striker. We're going to talk about one of their former goal-scoring legends, though, Sergio Aguero, a little bit later on. Uh, by the way, Kevin De Bruyne, absolutely fantastic as well. Looks like he'll be coming back to form. We'll talk about him, I'm sure, in the next couple of weeks. Up next on the Game Podcast, we're going to be talking about Co. COVID outbreaks in football. But remember, uh, if you're enjoying the game podcast, rate us, leave us a review and make sure you're subscribed. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry and some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. So we have already lost three Premier League matches in the last week to postponement due to the fast-moving, steeply rising COVID-19 infections helped in part by the new Omicron variant. As we speak, Brentford have just revealed 13 positive cases at the club. Their manager, Thomas Frank, has called on the FA uh, to postpone the Premier League this weekend and next week's EFL Cup matches as well. Large numbers of COVID patients ending up in hospital is a nailed-on prospect as the Omicron variant spreads at an absolutely phenomenal pace across the country. That is according to England's Chief Medical Officer, Professor Chris Whitty. Joining us on the Game Podcast, the Chief Sports Correspondent from The Times, Matt Lawton. Um, Matt, just before we get into, you know, what should happen next, explain to us where we stand right now. Well, where we stand right now is is that the Premier League remain intent on trying to keep the show on the road um, but that as we can all see is is proving increasingly difficult Thomas Frank's come out this morning revealed the fact they've got 13 positives at Brentford is calling for a, a break the thing is I'm not sure a break this weekend is going to make much difference because obviously all the people that are testing positive have now got to isolate for 10 days so what we're really looking at is, is, a, is a major impact right through the Christmas fixtures I do think this is while we can't be too hard on football because the fact of the matter is we had 78,000 new cases across the UK yesterday even people who and yet and yet we're being told that 28 million people have had the vaccine have had the booster which is supposed to offer some protection up to 75% I think um, it does feel like football is slightly paying for its hesitancy in getting vaccinated because the problem I think that a lot of clubs are having is the fact that if players didn't get vaccinated until perhaps October they, they can't get the booster yet and yet it's the booster seems to be the only thing that offers any protection against this new Omicron variant so it's a bit of a perfect storm for, for COVID in that it's it's just ripping through uh, changing rooms and through squads and, and through training grounds but it's becoming a problem for the sport it, it's Watford for instance yesterday the, the, the reason it was as I understand it it was so late in calling off the game and the reason that Watford had to 
pull out because I think the only rule at the moment is that uh, the only rule that's always been in place is that if you've got 14 players available, you've got to fulfil your fixture. But the problem that Watford had was that they'd already left for Burnley before the results came back. And then I guess they're all sitting on a bus or a plane or whichever form of transport they took. I I can't actually remember if that's even been specified. But the fact is, suddenly then the the, the test results came through after they'd left. And as I understand it, at that point, as they're all looking at each other, they didn't have 14 players. And because they had already left, they weren't in a position to get some more players to fulfil the fixture. So the whole thing is utterly chaotic. The, the latest thing I've heard is that the LMA are, are actually contacting the Premier League on behalf of the managers to say, look, we need some clarity here because the other the other problem, and we saw players, uh, managers like Klopp and um, uh, Brendan Rodgers articulate this view yesterday, is a lack of clarity when it comes to the criteria, you know, that leads to a game being called off. Um, and because there aren't any hard and fast rules on it, managers are getting a little bit annoyed about it. So you've, there's just a lot going on. But what Thomas Frank is almost predicting, you know, we can all see it's possible. It's part of me that thinks maybe the, the Watford game shouldn't have gone ahead anyway, even if they did have 14 players, because, you know, they had a, a number of players feeling ill on the morning. They they tested those players, waited for the results to come back. That was obviously very close to kickoff time. And then they postponed the game. But you're right. They, they did have an insufficient number of players. But you wonder whether... You know, the rest of the players who were available and would have gone into turf more and would have been out on the pitch with Burnley's players could still have been infectious and maybe just not feeling ill on that morning. So, yeah. So it's one of those where you feel like maybe football should have a circuit breaker. Yeah, but as I say, Hugh, it's it's how big a circuit breaker that is. And actually, is it going to... um is it going to serve much of a purpose if they still can't get the booster? Um, so I think I think we're probably heading that way, but there is still this great desire to keep going because yeah, we, we all get it. We all understand why it would be a disaster, really, if they had to suddenly call off all the Boxing Day games, for instance. This is not what they want, not with the TV deals, not with the number of fixtures. It's just going to, the knock-on effect, it, it, it's just massively problematic. But it may be unavoidable if 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 the infection rate keeps spreading. You know, you can only imagine that situation with the Watford party yesterday. Everything we're being told is, you know, someone, someone coughs within three feet of you with this variant you're probably going to get it it's spreading it spreads that rapidly well I imagine we are going to see or we are going to hear news of more positives at Watford because as you say all the people that were positive in that group yesterday have probably given it to everyone that wasn't positive so you know it's 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 just an escalating problem. Henry Winter's written in the Times that unvaccinated players should stay away to protect the integrity of team bubbles. Um, and it feels like they will return. Maybe if we have a short break, just to get those procedures back to what they were right at the start of this pandemic, before we had any uh, vaccine available, to try and get the training, the separate training. Remember, we had that, the, the cleanliness around and hygiene around the, the, the equipment the players use and the club atmosphere as well. And then, of course, there's the argument, like Henry puts forth as well, that there could maybe be a different set of procedures, like many different sports around the world, for those who are vaccinated fully and those who are totally unvaccinated. What do you think about that? I kind of see Henry's point, but 
it's it's very difficult to you know because the fact of the matter is yeah you could do that and you could separate the unvaccinated from the vaccinated because and and as i say let's 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 be clear here double vaccination doesn't appear to be of any use it's got to be boosted it's the players that are boosted and i think that'll be a relatively small number so 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 really the, the i guess the flaw in that in that uh in that idea is the fact that you know we all know people that have been boosted and are still testing positive so so i think the only guarantee the, you know, the only measures you can really put in place are the ones they have put in place which is the fact that every time players turn up at a training ground they are tested before they're allowed to get out of their cars and 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 if they are negative at that precise moment then they're allowed to go and train so i don't really know what more can be done beyond the procedures that are in place to protect people because as i say you, you can be you know <sighs> how reliable is the testing how you know it's 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 an impossible situation what about fans in grounds um covid passes are they going to be enough and do you think that system can work for a football ground with with 60,000 fans going through the turnstiles i thought it was noticeable that there were gaps in the crowds last night didn't you uh you know i thought um i think people are people are listening to the news bulletins people are they seem to be even possibly be listening to Boris, but but they're certainly listening to the medical advice. You know, it was, like, you know, you had you had one expert on on last night saying, "Don't go to a football ground to watch a football match. Go there to get vaccinated." You know, that's completely at, at odds with the with the, the sort of messaging that's coming out of the Premier League at the moment. Fact of the matter is, they are asking everybody to have a negative test. They're asking people to have their COVID their COVID. Uh, uh, passports should they be asked for them i think it's realistic that they're only going to perhaps check up to 20 percent of people because let's face it if you if you if you basically have a system in place at every stadium where where they're asking every single person coming in to show they've got proof of uh, a covid pass you know the game's going to be delayed by three hours so so again it's imperfect and i think we just will see a lot of people looking at that, particularly with Christmas coming up and just going, you know what, I'm not taking the chance. I'm, I'm not going to go to the game. I'll watch it on the telly. Tom Rowley, what do you think about all of this? Should football be having a, a break here for at least a couple of weeks? Ironically, Hugh, this is probably the only time a, a Winter World Cup actually seems like it has a bit of a positive as there is, I suppose, scope to add uh, games on to the end of the season. But as Matt rightly pointed out, you know, the TV deal, the money at the end of the day, that means that the powers that be will quite understandably say that the, sh the show must go on until the very last moment. Um, I mean, the truth as well is that it's not just COVID is, is the main issue here because it wipes out so many players, the whole squads, you know, um, immediately. But but the truth as well is, I mean, f football could benefit from it anyway. The amount of injuries that are going on right now is is, is quite incredible. Um, we're seeing it in all of the, the, the squads we're talking about. I mean, that's an interesting thing. Let's just have a break anyway, put our feet up for Christmas. I'm sure the players will enjoy that. A few parties, you know, and they'll, they'll all come back testing positive in, in January. They're going to have to keep a closer eye on the players than, than just having a few weeks off, I think. Um, regular testing, of course, is going to be going to be massive. Um, I personally, I, I can't see it any other way than, than at least the, the, the major concern for me is listening to Professor Chris Whitty is, 
you know, that massive question mark on, on not knowing exactly what this is. I still think there's a there's a safeguarding issue here in terms of the players. Yes, it's clear many of them are testing positive. That could rip through football grounds. But you almost feel like football should put itself on the working from home advice for a couple of weeks until they know exactly this variant will do. Um, but then I think you all know that I am an overly at times cautious person. Tom Clark, do you agree with me? I agree with you in a sense, Hugh, but I think it's almost impossible for it to happen in the way that you envisaged. I don't see how you can take that longer break at this time of a year with all the games you've got lined up. I, I feel a little bit sorry for football and for footballers because we're in this position now and Matt's quite rightly highlighted it being because of vaccinations and inconsistencies with the numbers of people vaccinated. But, you know, football always followed the kind of wider society, wider society lockdown football carried on this time last year. You know, without football, we'd all have been very, very bored during winter. Um, not just us professionally, but I think people in wider society. And I think that you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing, but we at least could have suspected that things would maybe get a little worse during the winter months. We were told that for a while. And that maybe it wasn't factored in a little bit of preventative measures, maybe a bit of gaps between the fixtures to allow to accommodate these kind of moments where footballers are suddenly testing positive in high numbers. And so, as we've also highlighted, because of the money, because of the financial pressures, I can't see how they are going to stop. So I do. I feel a little bit sorry for the players themselves in some respects because you know they they feel slightly isolated because. Last year and before, football was one of the first things to return to society. It was one of the only things to carry on during the lockdown last winter. And now here we are. You know, lots of people are still carrying on. I went to the theatre a few days ago. That's carrying on. And, you know, we're here debating whether football should carry on. And it kind of feels like football gets left to the last minute after a wider society. And then that might get stopped. I just, but I, I just don't see any way that it can stop. So, uh, just to confirm, Tom Roddy, do you think that we should? Well, you think we should stop, don't you? Just for a bit of a break. I don't know if you think we should, or whether you think that would just be a good thing. So, I don't want to put words in your mouth. No, I think I think the, the problem as well, Hugh, is that uh, I I think you made just the, the the right point. I was thinking that the numbers tell us this isn't this isn't a football problem. This is a, a UK problem. The numbers tell us that it wouldn't necessarily matter if games are going on or not. Players are still going to, in two weeks' time, players are still going to have caught COVID in the in a similar way that they have now. The, the, of course, the problem is that they're in, they are in dressing rooms and they are in changing rooms and on on buses. Um, I believe in in Scotland they had this this system whereby um, players who started games would sit on a coach alongside and, and sit next to players unlikely to to start. So if there was a transmission, it wouldn't it wouldn't take out your whole starting eleven essentially. But I, I don't. I don't think. I don't think it will stop, and I'm not entirely sure it should right now. There is some football though that that could well be stopped. The European Club Association, the ECA, includes the Premier League's top clubs, has written to FIFA 
saying new developments around the COVID pandemic mean the release dates for the Africa Cup of Nations are unmanageable. They claim organizers have not put in place adequate medical protocols. Of course, the tournament's uh, taking place in Cameroon. It starts on January the 9th. Reports in Africa do say it might be cancelled, but, th- but there are some that claim it shouldn't be taking place and the players shouldn't be travelling. Tom Clark, we already spoke about the political situation in Cameroon and whether the tournament should be moved over that. Should the pandemic mean that the AFCON is either cancelled or moved? Probably it should in the way that we probably should have a break. But I do, I do feel slightly uncomfortable about the idea of uh, Premier League clubs leading the charge to postpone a tournament for which means so much to an entire continent that is obsessed with football for whom this tournament doesn't come round all that often. Um, it's a chance for the fans in, in those countries to see players that they don't often get a chance to see. It makes me feel slightly uncomfortable, that idea that that's, that, that's the tournament that stops. That's the tournament that pays the penalty, if you like, for uh, the current circumstances um, in the world whilst and, and then you would see AFCON postponed or moved or and then other it, it starts the ball rolling for players to say oh well I'm not going to I'm not going to go but all the tournaments and all the competitions uh, linked to English and British clubs continue and that that makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. If they could, if they could move it with the commitment to play it in the same, in the same manner with the same commitment from all the top level players, maybe that would be a solution. But I think the problem is with these things. Once you, yeah, it's it's the same with an international squad. I find sometimes, as journalists, once one England player says, "I'm not going, I'm not going to play this friendly," then that starts the trickle down of, "Oh, I've got a slight groin strain." If you say, oh, well, the Africa Cup of Nations is going to be adapted slightly, it's going to be moved, you just open the possibility. So you, you say, we're not fully committed to this. We're not fully wholeheartedly committed to this. And that then gives you the opportunity for top-level Premier League managers to say to players, ah, maybe maybe duck out of this one. Maybe they've missed this one. And then you would see player withdrawals as well. It, it, it just doesn't sit with me quite right. I don't know about you. I don't know. Am I being too sensitive there? I don't think so. No, I, I agree with you on that. Um, I think there would be a trickle down effect. Um, I, I do think there's a chance of moving it if this is proven to be right, that the, Firstly, medical protocols aren't up to scratch. And then secondly, you know, we know what's going on in terms of political conflict in the country. Um, but I, but I would say is you know you know France a lot of the players in Afcon are playing in in Liga um, certainly around Europe you know could you host it in firstly a, a, another African nation possibly I've mentioned Qatar before but France as well or will all of these countries say no to having that number of travellers coming into the country and would there be a quarantine period and would that mean that players maybe have to be released even earlier from Premier League clubs um, I'm, I'm not quite sure. You know, I don't, I agree with you. I don't like the idea that Premier League clubs should be telling um, a, a continent what to do with their tournament. And just very quickly, reflecting back on the whole issue, you know, I, I'm, I'm an editor. I sit very safely either in my flat or in my office. You guys, you two guys going to games. How, how do you feel? You know, I was speaking to my dad about going to Lincoln Games over this period and he was 
understandably cautious, not just because long winter drives and all that kind of stuff. He was thinking in his late 60s, yes, he's had his booster, but it's probably put him off. As reporters, have you seen, have you seen or spoken to anyone about slight caution, increased caution with going to grounds to report on games live? Yeah, I mean, I've I certainly, it's been certainly noticeable since last night, really, because even, I mean, I was covering the Arsenal-West Ham game and I think there was actually, uh, there weren't as many empty seats as, you, as there may have actually been because of sell-on. So there were big gaps at the Emirates Stadium, but what you actually had was a situation where season ticket holders were selling their tickets. There was a significant number of that happening. So the people who were willing to risk themselves going to to games and, and, and getting COVID uh, were taking their tickets, but the, the, the normal uh, match day goers were, were a lot of them were taking a step back from this. Um, I mean, the truth, the, the issue at the moment is, is partially because of what, um, what was said by the NHS in that it is prioritizing at the moment. I, d- I don't know whether maybe it wouldn't be the same situation if it wasn't for Christmas right now. People are, people are looking at Christmas day and thinking it's not worth risking going to a game now and being in isolation. So there's, I suppose there's a slight difference between being, um, being fearful of, of catching COVID and being stuck at home to catching COVID and being impacted by it in a medical way. I haven't thought about it much, to be perfectly honest, because, you know, the, the Oxford Street's open, you know, people are going out to do their Christmas shopping. You know, the tube is still uh, very busy, even though there's that work from home instruction and nothing seems to have shut down. So it, it feels like normal life. And um, I haven't really thought too much outside of it. And my belief is that if the cases continue to rise exponentially, as it's predicted, they will. Um, you know, that I, I heard Dr. Excuse me, Professor Witty talking about the fact that, look, even if it's not worse than the Delta variant, obviously, if you have three times as many infections, there's a chance that you can have three times as many hospitalizations. And as a result, possibly three times as many deaths, hopefully not. And my view is that, of course, if that then becomes reality, that we will go back to behind closed doors, which, of course, no one wants. But in terms of um, for us working at football matches, it is much safer, um, generally speaking, in terms of transport going there and in terms of getting into the ground. Um, it doesn't mean I want that to happen. Of course, I don't want that to happen. But at the moment, I think that football would make that decision if things get very, very bad. I, th- I thought everything Chris Whitty said during that um, press conference basically was suggesting uh, a, a lockdown was necessary, and when you consider sixty thousand people in a in a football stadium, that goes the to- in the total opposite direction. Really, uh, we will see how things pan out. I think this is one that we're going to be discussing for the next few weeks. It might feel very familiar to what we've done in the last eighteen months. Um, our thanks to Matt Lawton uh, for joining us on the Game Podcast. Up next, we'll be talking about the one and only, the great Sergio Aguero. Finally, on the game podcast, very sad news this week. Sergio Aguero retiring from football to protect his health. He says he's proud of the career he's had 
had to accept a very difficult reality, though. Um, he announced the news earlier this week, less than six months after joining Barcelona. The Manchester City legend taken to hospital at the end of October after experiencing chest discomfort during a draw with Alaves. The decision I have made, I have taken it for my health, said Aguero. Manchester City boss Pep Guardiola actually among the crowd that was watching Aguero make the announcement next to the pitch at the camp now. Some stats on what has been an incredible career, albeit ending far too early. Aguero, the fourth highest scorer in Premier League history, 184 goals in 275 games, only behind Alan Shearer, who scored 260, Wayne Rooney, 208, and Andrew Cole, 187. He's the league's highest scoring overseas player, registering nine more goals than Thierry Henry. Aguero scored every 108 minutes in the Premier League. It is comfortably the best rate in the competition's history. He could play another 28 games of Premier League football without scoring, and he would still have the best minutes per goal ratio of any player in the top flight with more than 20 goals. He scored 18 hat-tricks in his career, 12 in the Premier League. That is a record in the English top flight. And he scored 20-plus goals in all competitions in 12 of 13 campaigns between 2007-8 and 2019-20. He reached 30 or more on five separate occasions during his time at Manchester City. It is remarkable. It is so sad to see him in tears and retiring in a way like this. Every ex-player tells you, you want to have it in your hands, your retirement. You want to make the decision yourself to have it taken away from you is something even more painful. Tom, I think some of those stats point towards it, but do you think he's the Premier League's greatest ever striker? He will absolutely, no doubt, be amongst that conversation forever. I think for what he's done as well is key. I think I would probably, I probably still lean towards Thierry Henry, but I think that's partially because I like personality in football as well. Um, I've always admired Henri's personality as part of his style, the, the sort of va-va-voom, the, the kind of swagger involved in it. What makes Aguero so remarkable to me is that is, is almost the, the lack of ego in a way. And I, I mean, how, how much did we actually know or hear or learn about Aguero in 10 years of him playing in this country? He, he led such a sort of simple life and, and a difficult one in a way, because for, for large parts of it, his son, he was, he was parted from his son. Um, and that's, that's certainly not easy. And I thought one of actually one of the most impressive parts of Aguero's time at City, you know, you read out some of his stats there, Hugh, and which I think, Included the the fact he scored twenty you know twenty goals in six separate Premier League campaigns, and part of that was when midway through that was when Pep Guardiola came in, and that was that, that was a real test of 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 his character of of his ego and where he where he was going to go because most strikers with records like him who were already being considered as one of the best this division has ever seen would probably think against being changed in the same way that Guardiola was asking him to, dropping him to the bench and preferring 
an unproven player like Gabriel Jesus, but he, he, I mean, he met the challenge. Um, and there's, there's no doubt he will always be considered among the best because he was probably without a doubt, the most prolific finisher, the, the best finisher it's just as a striker, I sway towards Omri. I'm going to go yes, I think, because I started the morning thinking I would say, nah, no way. And then I started looking at his stats and looking back at some of the goals he scored. And I think if you're in modern football, it's very easy to say greatest striker and talk about the hold-up play of this guy, the team play of this guy, the aerial ability of this guy, the skill, the pace, everything. But a striker primarily is there to score goals. And if you're talking about a goal scorer, I can't think of many better than Sergio Aguero. Obviously, there'll be lots of listeners who will be saying, you know, football started long before the Premier League and there's lots of players to consider from many, many years ago, of course. But if you're talking about the Premier League and players that we've seen, Tom hinted at it there at the end, it's just so clinical, so deadly. He just like he looked like he was completely possessed with the idea of scoring goals. I think about that goal he scored against Liverpool for Manchester City in a game which basically, um, I think, I think it all but clinched the title for them. I think, I think that's right. Um, and it was that kind of quick dart to the front post. He kind of stamped on the ball to take a touch and span and hit it straight into the roof of the net. That was one of the most deadly, most brilliant bits of intricate skill. Made it look so easy. And I bet there are about five players in the league who could have done it. Same with the famous goal against QPR. The, the, the double feint to go past the players sliding in on him at the last minute in order to get awful a clear shot on goal. Awful. I, I, Absolutely yeah, but, woeful defending. Can, we not, many can players, we not mention that moment? Jeez. How many players would have taken the shot and rushed it in that last moment? And I mean... You just can't, and there's some. There's, the stats go on and on and on, Hugh. I mean, you read some of them out. The other one, I was thinking, trying to make arguments with myself, and thinking, ah, well, maybe you know, he was a bit of a flat track bully, wasn't he? he? Scored, scored goals against easy opposition. No, he didn't. He scored 15 goals against Chelsea, 12 against Tottenham, 11 against Arsenal, 15 against Newcastle. They were the top teams that he scored his goals against. And, you know, we're not talking about scoring goals against like Norwich and, and West Brom and teams that were down the bottom of the table and promoted from the championship. He's scoring big games against the best, best defences. And also just very quickly on his personality, I agree that with Tom as a journalist, we never got to know him that well. But there's a lovely little moment where you could see what a kind of fun character he was on the pitch when Vincent Kompany scored that screamer against Leicester for Manchester City. Um, which proves so important. And there's a lovely clip which you can look up. We're back in Tom's tips for what to watch on YouTube. But if you look up uh, Aguero, company, don't shoot. There's a lovely clip at the end of the game where all the players are piling in on company and saying, you're a legend, what a goal, what a goal. And Aguero comes running over and goes, Vinny, Vinny, did you hear me? I was saying, don't shoot. No, Vinny, no, don't shoot. And, you know, just that kind of fun to come and laugh with a player like a company stature who just scored a screamer in the top corner. And Aguero's coming over and laughing at himself for the fact that he was screaming at him, don't shoot. There's a little hint there of what a fun kind of character he was. But yeah, I just, I'm going to go out there and say the, the greatest goal scorer of the Premier League, certainly, if I'm allowed to tweak the question slightly. No, you're not. Um, so the answer is great. <laughs> <laughs> fine, fine. If I'm not allowed to tweak it, I'll still stick with it then. Greatest striker. That's fine. I'll stick with it. 
I'm, I'm just trying to ease my um, ease the abuse that I might get on Twitter for saying that he's the greatest striker uh, and from all my friends who are Arsenal fans. If Thierry Henry had played now, we'd all be calling him a forward. Oh, he's not really a, an out-and-out striker. He's a forward. Yeah. He drifts onto the left-hand side. He can take players on. He can score. A bit like Mo Salah, you know, he, he, obviously he starts the game out there on the, on the left-hand side, but Henry had so many facets to his game you know, that if he played now and, and he was on the left wing, you'd see him as equally dangerous. Um, Aguero, I think, was that player in the box. What He had a sledgehammer of right foot as well. If he got a clean shot away, you know, he'd basically burst the back of the net. He was incredible. Uh, I think there's a very strong argument that he is the greatest Premier League striker of all time, if we use that word, strictly speaking, striker. Um, so we, we get away with it on semantics on the game podcast. That's how we like to do. That's how we like to do all of our stories, frankly. Uh, Tom Roddy, Tom Clark, thank you for being with me for the past hour or so. Our thanks to Matt Lawton as well. Make sure you check out the developing story regarding what happens with football in the next week and the Africa Cup of Nations uh, on the Times app and the Times website. Remember, you can subscribe at the moment. If you do, you will get yourself one month free. So check it out. It's thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. We will be back with you on Monday. Hopefully, fingers crossed, reacting to football matches that go ahead. But do stay safe. I'm off to get my booster. You do the same as well. We'll see you on Monday. Monday. 